I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. He's an artist, actor, musician, urban planner, and activist. But in the past five years, the Astor Gates has emerged as one of America's most inventive redevelopers. The Astor is the founder of Rebuild Foundation, based in Chicago, and director of Arts and Public Life at the University of Chicago. Theaster, when I drive down Dorchester on Chicago's south side, it's not immediately apparent that anything special is going on there. When you stand on the street, what is it you see? It's actually really great that there's nothing apparent happening. That part of what I'm hoping to do is create a situation where a neighborhood simply goes from highly abandoned to really activated and that that activation doesn't have um, glitz and glamour or the formation of a new cultural district. It's simply normal people living in a healthy place where things are a little bit better than they had been, or maybe a lot better. But the things that are better are actually quite modest, like everything, all the lawns are mowed. All of the the trees that uh, were uh, in bad shape, they've been removed. Uh, the 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 porches on the block have um, a little bit of thoughtfulness around their reconstruction or their patching, or when people come outside, they nod at each other, right? And so so what I've noticed over the last three or four years is that when Dorchester had been a place that was, you know, it was hugely violent, it was um, in some ways underkept. And the, the 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 young people even now kind of struggled for things to do that we've been able to address some of those very normal everyday needs in a way that is more neighborly than it is organizational. And so, what is it that you've done, the Aster, to get the lawns mowed and the porches patched correctly? What was the intervention? What was the theaster intervention there? Oh, thanks. Yeah. What we've done over the last four years is we've first become part of um, the Grand Crossing neighborhood, right, by attending uh, council meetings and spending time with the aldermen and creating a coffee hour. Um, We've basically found a strategic way to be better neighbors. <laughs> um, and so that's included an ongoing dialogue with our neighbors about what our needs are in and around the neighborhood, and then kind of structurally dealing with that. So now we have a person who's full time on the rebuild staff, and they are the keeper of the grounds. And so every day, Chris, who lives a block away from 69th and Dorchester, he comes to work. And the first thing that he does is he starts to assess and evaluate how things are looking. Is the sewer working? Do we need to call streets and sands? And then he starts mowing and he starts pruning and he starts talking to young people about how things get planted and why we shouldn't like step on the plants. You know, and and it looks like a young guy mowing the lawn, but in fact, it's um, part of an organizational strategy to ensure that blight uh, no longer lives in a neighborhood where um, blight was very prevalent. What part of this work is art? Because it doesn't sound like art. It sounds like mowing the grass and pruning the trees. Right. I think think, uh, what I've found is that the, the kind of artistic endeavor that I'm engaged in 
is really uh, the idea that artists can help solve all kinds of problems and not just museum problems. So I wouldn't call mowing the grass a work of art. But what I would say is that over the four or five years on the block of really being intentional, the way that I solve neighborhood problems are, uh, happens to be solutions that I think are informed by my artistic practice, which are simply creative solutions to everyday problems, you know? And that, that, that creative solution like, oh, maybe instead of having a full-time administrator, we need a full-time keeper of the grounds. And in fact, that's gonna be my first deployment over another kind of administration. And that that has been, you know, in my case and on the block, it's felt very revolutionary. Now there are moments that are more artful moments, like the creative rehab of the buildings and actually what the bricks and mortar looks like and what the interiors of these structures look like. And we're very, very proud of the the way that we've structured a kind of workforce model and apprenticeship model in order to get very high levels of excellence in the design work. But actually, I don't even like talking about that part. It kind of speaks for itself. It's like art. The part that I get more excited about is that we might be able to, through Rebuild Foundation, create a block club and through the not-for-profit, give financial support and intellectual kind of consulting support to the rest of our neighbors for their normal challenges and that that would feel natural, that we have a block club that could generate resources in a way that most block clubs couldn't, that we would be able to kind of systematically solve challenges of uh, sometimes unemployment, sometimes gang violence, and that those things would just happen as part of what the, the block club's natural course would be that kind of uh, invisible, tangible support is very exciting to me. And it doesn't have to reek of external not-for-profit craziness, but rather, oh, these are people who live on the block who really care about their block. Two questions. What, Theaster, is it about you as an artist? Is it part of your training? Is it part of your outlook? Do other artists share this mm -hmm. outlook that... It's bringing the cre creative solutions is the artistic part, right? Bringing the creative solutions to everyday yeah. problems. Yeah. Do if, if I were going to go in as a non-artist and I were looking for an artistic partner, yes. what would I look for in to, to, to get this sort of approach to the work? You know, Carol, I, I think your, your question is, ex it is the exact question of, what is the stuff that makes this work work? And I'd like to say that it has absolutely nothing to do with my particularities. That I, that I would like to say that there might be three things that if those things come together in ways that are beyond strategy, but also lend themselves to belief, most communities could be very, very successful. One is there has to be people who really believe in the place where they're working and, and where they're living. Combined with that, those people have to be armed with strategy and knowledge about how transformation happens. And when you have that knowledge and you're armed and you have the conviction to change things, then you have to know what are the resources, who are the players 
what is the web, what is the network of association necessary in order for me to manifest my convictions? They're really simple things. And what I've found uh, among people who are doing this work around the country is that they may have money and no conviction. They may have belief and no access to resources. They may have strategy with no, um, uh, uh, no depth in a particular place. And as a result, they do all of the administrative and strategic things right, but no one comes. They throw a lot of money at a thing and it looks good for a year, but there's no sticking power. And so I think that it's really netting, webbing, uh, interlocking um, local belief, um, tremendous strategy and access to resource and people who can help move those strategies forward that, that have, have been helpful for me. Now it happened that when I started the work, I had strategy and no money. Uh, I had a little bit of cash, but I wasn't politically or culturally as connected as I would like to be. And so those things have had to grow over time. But I think that now that those things are more tightly connected, um, the rate at which we're able to demonstrate the work is much faster than in the past. You used programming as a way to bring new people into the neighborhood to see what you were doing. Yes. Very inventive programming. Talk about that a little bit and where that fits into that three-part model you just described. That's right. So, so let's say that um, in some ways, what we're loosely calling programming means that there are people associated with what we do who think first about how can we make Dorchester a relevant place? And it can become relevant in lots of different ways. Programming, if we use that word broadly, programming is definitely one way. That what we wanna do is say, hey, this building had been abandoned and not only is it no longer abandoned, it is here for you. And then the program itself, whether it's the glass lantern slides being performed with a live jazz ensemble, whether it's a gospel choir rehearsing in the backyard, whether it's a barbecue or you know the work that's happening in Black Cinema House. In a way, almost, it doesn't matter what the program is. What matters is that these people who feel strongly that the spaces should be active and that they are there for the, the people in the neighborhood and beyond, that those people have smart and strategic ways of showing why black cinema is relevant in a black neighborhood, why black cinema is relevant in a Hispanic neighborhood, why Hispanic film deserves light and why, you know what I mean? And so there's a way in which we've leveraged programming to demonstrate how important it is that people convene with one another, that people um, share their challenges. And we found that there might be times where people come for the program, but they stay for each other. That after the movie is over, they still talking and they're curious about each other. And, and so all we needed to do was kind of create the right moment where there could be nexus between sometimes city officials who like film and our neighbors who like film. Because if our neighbors are talking casually directly to city officials, I found that's sometimes way more compelling than anything I could say. You lean into the idea of bringing new investors and new investment to disinvested neighborhoods. Some people think about that as gentrification. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you speak about this um, and tell people in neighborhoods that you're working in 
you know, sweep your porch, invest in a building, find, if you can't invest, find three other people who can invest with you. You take a very different view of reinvestment. Talk about that. One of the things that I found really interesting, Carol, is that say in Grand Crossing, if there were if there were portfolio managers in the world who were interested in very affordable housing stock around the country, that those portfolio managers were already acquiring buildings in, in Grand Crossing way before I moved there. That there was a kind of, if we were talking about gentrification in relationship to ownership, that the buildings were already quote unquote white. They were already spoken for, many of them. And so what I've been trying to encourage is a kind of how do we ensure that the buildings, that, that for the people on the ground in the neighborhoods that I'm talking about, that they understand housing finance, debt management, um, that they can start to have relationships with banks, that they can start to form cooperatives with one another so that if one person can't afford a $40,000 building and needs some support, who are the three people together that could think smartly about those buildings? And if there is no counter solution, then all we'll have is affordable and low-income housing developers in our neighborhood making grand cases for 100 to 200 to 500 units in a place. And what I found in different parts of the country is that we're creating new ghettos of affordable housing that don't have cultural amenities, they don't have um, public uses, they don't have um, a new commercial enterprise. They're not growing the entrepreneurial spirit as much as they're growing these bedroom communities. And so you have unbalanced communities where all people can do is sleep and then seek employment somewhere else or unfortunately be cut off from great education and great employment and great commercial amenities. And so I'm really trying to think about those parts. And to do that, I'm uh, standing at the top of a tree and waving it and saying, hey, you guys, this is a beautiful place we live in, even though things look a little funky right now. But if we can band together quietly and care for our community ourselves, we can be in advance of the inevitable reinvestments that happen, not only from developers, but when the city decides that it's time for a neighborhood to redevelop and they start to incentivize a certain kind of growth. Is there a way that we could say to folk who are already on the ground, hey, this place that you live in is special and that there might be strategies among us to kind of um, help kickstart reinvestment in advance of another kind of developer coming because ultimately in all of our cities around the country, around the world, our urban centers are gonna grow. And so poor and under-resourced people will either be a part of that growth or not, or will continue to be renters. It's interesting when I think about your approach to what you call the Black Cinema House. That's something, mm -hmm. you know, we helped fund at Art Place. Mm -hmm. And I think about the way that most communities would approach a Black Cinema House. Right. They would right. take, they would build a new building. It right. would make, you know, you'd have to hold 300, 400 people. Right. You know, there'd be quite a bit of operating expense. Right. Your approach is, let's take a building, let's rehab it at a fairly nominal rate. Let's make it flexible. Maybe this year it's the Black Cinema House, but maybe next year that moves down the street and this becomes something else. You have this micro mm. 
flexible approach that seems really well adapted for neighborhoods like Grand Crossing. Is that a is that an intentional strategy or is that just something that happened? Carol, it's extremely intentional. Part of what I have learned is that if people don't believe that they have the capacity to do a thing that I'm doing, then it's it's probably not replicable. That when when people come into Black Cinema House and they look around, they're like, "Man, this building looks good. I could show films at my house." And that and and that idea that someone could immediately imagine themselves as the purveyor of film a block away is extremely exciting. So that when when organizations ask me, "Well, theater is this scalable? Is it replicable?" I can say, um, absolutely, but I don't want to replicate it. I want the rumor to replicate itself. I want people to I want people to steal the idea and really feel like they're stealing it and they're they're grafting it into what they're doing in St. Louis, in New Jersey, you know, in, in other parts of the country. I want them, I don't even want them to call me and ask me, Carol. I want them to simply say, Oh my God, we have a two flat on the block. We could take the first floor and make it a film house and take the second floor and make it our editing labs and our place for the conversation of film. And it's at that level, even if, you know, a year after Black Cinema House opened, we were then too small. But what had happened was that as a result of its success, we were then able to, like any other kind of attrition rate, we were able to identify another site that was three times larger and say, hey, let's move there now that we have added support, a base, a home base, a community of people who are going to follow us wherever, let's move to that new space. And maybe after the third move, we can say, okay, it's time for the model to shift. And it's time to go from a not-for-profit entity to a for-profit commercial movie theater. But if I had started to build a commercial theater house in my neighborhood, it may not have immediately registered as something that was for the residents in my neighborhood. It may have been successful, but I may have missed a whole generation of young black kids who wouldn't have felt this is for me. Now, those young people are my um, film managers. They are my house managers. They know how to load and unload 16 millimeter film and they're learning. And that's exciting to me. You also talked about your uh, approach to uh, a neighborhood and the entrepreneurship that you just seem to naturally gravitate to. You know, something needs to be done. You're thinking, how can somebody in the neighborhood do it? How can we make money doing it? I mean, there's there's this whole approach to resource and resource generation that I think, again, is very different from the typical models we see. What does that look like for you? I mean, is it every project you're trying to seek the revenue generation and the entrepreneurial opportunities for people in the neighborhood? I mean, is, is it simply that or is it something much grander that I don't yet perceive? Well, I, th- I think it's a combination of things, Carol. When, when I think about a successful project, Part of what's built into that success has to be, if it's a project that is intentionally going to die, how does it die gracefully? If it it lives for two years and then goes away, what does it morph into? Is, Is there some kind of karmic reincarnation, you know? And then if the thing is intentionally going to succeed, then how do we catalyze it? And then what's necessary for its future success? And in many cases, it requires that we think about 
how can more people benefit locally from the catalytic activity that's happening? And so now that that's part of the way that I think, it has become part of the entrepreneurial rubric of the project itself. And so I, I use this word entrepreneur grossly because I think that for most people who know how to really make money legally, they set their hearts to making a lot of it and making as much of it for themselves as possible. In my case, making money is a kind of means to an end that what I'm actually after is the restoration of the neighborhood that I live in. And what happens as a byproduct of that is that lots of resources and lots of people are needed in order to make the work happen. And so a lot of people benefit from the resources that flow. When you have that out of sync so that you concentrate only on we need a new playground in the neighborhood and we don't think about who builds it, then you get a new playground. And what happens is that the three or four or five hundred thousand dollars, the million to two to five million dollars, the 20 to 30 to 50 million dollars moves through your neighborhood and nobody freaking benefits. And it's like, how can you build an amphitheater, a stadium, a school, a commercial district and nobody be local? And you not grow a new development corporation, you not create new general contractors, you not create new painters and plumbers and electricians. And so what I've been trying to do is in advance of the big move, what infrastructure needs to be in place so that when you're ready to make the big move, more people locally benefit from it. And so that kind of entrepreneurship is not just about the bottom line, but it's about the bottom lines the multiple lines that should benefit as a result of the project happening. Theaster, you recently received support from Knight to expand your work. How do you plan to use the funds? Oh my gosh. For the last three years, Carol, I have been trumping around the country preaching the word that local neighborhoods have the capacity, local, you know, a city has the capacity to transform its blight, that artists are a big part of the way that that happens, that Transformation without local participation won't work. That local participation informed with some resource can do things that governments by themselves and developers by themselves. I've been preaching. What I found was that um, lots of people were interested in the work and what they were doing was they were inviting me to lots of different cities to kind of get the party started, get the fire lit. And I'm finding that that's not necessarily the best use of my time. That I'm actually maybe much better at the tactical work that is three or four layers in past the the pomp and circumstance and past the the kind of preliminary town hall excitement. I want to be involved in the tactical work. And so what I asked Knight to do was to consider allowing me to create a small institute, a kind of think tank, uh, a group of people that could help me code the work that I've been doing. And that that would allow me to be in one place long enough that I could be reflective about the work that's been happening over the last seven or eight years. We would make that code in the first year. And while making that code, we would identify three cities that are night cities. And we would think with them about how that code might be useful with them for the redevelopment work that they're doing. Those cities that we decided upon were Akron, Ohio, Gary, Indiana, and Detroit, Michigan. And for different reasons, they're all kind of rust belt, but they represent three cities that have 
different highs and lows, different middles that they, that they could, they were cities that all had varying kinds of cultural ambition and reinvestment ambition and varying things going right. And then questions about how they could be more successful. We are um, starting to put a team together that would think not only with those three night cities, but we would use those night cities along with Chicago as case studies for transformation that for a kind of cultural transformation throughout the country and maybe in other parts of the world. And so what it allows me, Carol, is an opportunity to say to other cities, like we're talking to Opaluka, hey, friends in Miami, why don't you meet us in Detroit? Let's look at Detroit's challenges. Let's look at Chicago's challenges. Then let's think about Opaluka together and that there might be things that we're, we're doing in these other cities around the country that might be useful strategies and tactics. So in Opelaka, Brother Willie has a lot of things going on that are working. He understands the housing piece very, very well. How do we leverage his knowledge of the housing piece to complement that with culture? How do we complement housing and culture with um, local community empowerment politically so that new cultural businesses emerge new entrepreneurs emerge, and they're not just entrepreneurs around housing and worker housing, but they're also cultural entrepreneurs. Again, we could ask the question over and over, Carol, but is this art, but is this art, but is this art? And I think that that's the wrong question. The, the bigger question for me is, is this artful? Is there a strategy that's happening here that is different from traditional developer political, cultural strategies? Is there a way in which, because of my weird art brain, combined with my growing knowledge of politics and development and how cities work, is there something that's happening that's a little bit different? And I'm excited to share that with, with my friends around the country. I can't wait. The Astor, thanks for being our guest on Night Cities. My pleasure. The Astor Gates is founder of Rebuild Foundation in Chicago. You've been listening to Night City, the production of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. I'm Carol Coletta.